So pretty much everything I want to say today, I'm just going to expand on a little bit from this next uh, story, this first story here. It's a fairly well-known story from the Zen tradition, and it goes like this. Um, teacher has been teaching this particular student for a very long time, and the student finally kind of gets up the nerve after some months or years working together to ask the question that the student has always wanted to ask. Teacher, tell me, tell me what happens after we die. And the spiritual master says, nonchalantly, I don't know. And the student is just completely floored, just knocked on their butt, just but, but, start, they stammer, stammer. But, 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 you know, you're, you're a spiritual master. You're a Zen teacher. You have insight and diligence and practice and all these wise teachings. If, if you don't know, who will? You're so wise. You're a great teacher. And the Zen master responds, yes, but not a dead one. It's <laughs> pretty much what I want to say here today, so I'm going to go home right now. No. Um, <laughs> Today, I want to close out this message series, Good Looking Out, about the power of awareness, about the power of expanding our awareness to the places of the limits of our awareness, to the limits of what we can know, and of course, the limits of what we know, defined as we are as humans by our mortality, the limits of what we know is death. And particularly to dig into those places where we may see or sense, and I'll just put it in quotes, something more, something more than just simply this physical plane of reality, what Paul in the Christian Scripture called the experience of looking through a glass dimly, where our vision is not complete or whole, but we sense something moving. The first message that I gave in this series was called The Best Guess Project. Now, I'm really ending with my best guess project here today. The best guess I know about that something more comes to me from my own experiences and from the experiences of people I have known and loved, and from worldwide and from many different ages, the experiences of what we might call mystical insights of that something more, that sensing, that seeing, that isn't perhaps entirely solid, but it feels very real to us. Um, i share from you a story from my dad. My dad, who the extent of his spiritual behavior is basically this. He goes to the synagogue twice a year, once on Yom Kippur out of complete obligation and duty, uh, and once on the Friday night closest to the anniversary, the yard site from the Yiddish, of my mother's death. That and um, seemingly the other thing that he does that I think he would describe as spiritual, I'm not quite sure if I would, is getting a glass of wine or several and sitting down and listening to as many recorded versions of Amazing Grace as he can get his ears to and crying. So th that's about who my dad is spiritually. All that said, all that said, a number of years ago, maybe 15 years ago, um, my dad was on vacation in the Caribbean with my stepmother and he was swimming in a pool, just kind of doing laps back and forth. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the water, in the middle of the pool, he was seized by the experience of his limbs being completely uncoordinated. He literally, like, just like, it wasn't like he didn't even know how to swim. He didn't even know this concept called swimming. He just, his, his, like, his body just dropped out from underneath him and his body forgot how to swim. And he kind of 
choked and splashed his way over to the wall and kind of hung out there for a minute until he collected himself and felt he could coordinate his movements of his limbs again. And he got out of the water and said to my stepmother, I don't, I don't know what happened. It's just like everything, all my capacities went away. He was fine in time, a matter of minutes. Later that afternoon, they went back to their hotel room where they were staying. And my dad got a call, which is that his mom had died. His mom had died at just about precisely the same moment that he had lost all physical coordination, almost become, if you would, an infant in water. Now, my dad had a very complex relationship with his mother. Uh, now we would call it, and we have a better understanding, she had postpartum depression. And so what my dad recalls the stories of his birth are about is a series of aunts who were able to look after him when his mother could not. So when he died, he wasn't sure how to feel. But here's the thing. In that moment of losing the capacity to be an adult, he felt a connection with her. He didn't choose it. He wouldn't have wanted it, especially not in the middle of a pool. And yet, something strange happened. Even in the middle of his complex grief for his mom, he sensed that perhaps he sensed connections so strong that cannot be severed. When it comes to these kind of mystical experiences, and especially around death, I call myself a hopeful agnostic of something more, of something that transcends simply this life. The hopeful part, I would say, is growing in me as I hear more and more of these stories and get more and more of a sense that this is not simply all that there is. The agnostic part is not an indifference to belief. It's simply, you might know, the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. That's where we get Gnostic from. It means, I'm not dead, at least not right now, at least I hope not. <laughs> I don't know what experiences like this mean, but I know that experiences like the one that my dad had happened to him happen to many people, perhaps have happened in your awareness and in your sensation of what it is like to be alive and to be connected to people who have died or are dying. I must tell you that it is always on the lips or in the heart of someone who I'm sitting with who has just lost someone that they love. The question so often is, are they okay? Are they safe? And what I do is I answer with my hope, because at that point my knowledge doesn't do me much good, <laughs> and a sermon doesn't help. And so I say, yes, they are okay. So I maintain my status as a hopeful agnostic with stress a little bit more on the hope these days about connections that can never be severed. You may have heard of this fellow. You may have seen him. Eben Alexander. The book next to him is book Proof of Heaven. Bad title, even if he doesn't like the title. Dr. Eben Alexander, Duke University medical trained Eben Alexander, taught at Harvard University for 15 years Eben 
Alexander. Even Alexander, as a neurosurgeon, described himself for most of his life as being fundamentally a materialist. And I'm not talking about accruing a lot of goods and stuff as we go through this life. I'm talking about the kind of materialism that says this. Consciousness, which is simply the awareness that we are aware. Perhaps the greatest gift of what it is to be alive. The signature thing about what it means to be human. Consciousness, he would say is totally reducible and totally dependent upon the human brain. He would say that the minute that the brain dies, the consciousness goes out. He would have said that for most of his life, until Dr. Eben Alexander, a number of years ago, scientifically trained, found himself with E. coli-caused bacterial meningitis. Literally, without getting too graphic, but he describes it in the book, his brain was engulfed in infection. And he found himself in a week-long coma. Now, in my complete layperson understanding of brain science, which is, brain science, which is to say, I'm sure I'm going to mangle it, his understanding of what happened after he looked at all the scans of his brain, after he emerged from the coma is that his neocortex, the part of the brain that makes him him, that holds all the memories, that holds his identity, that was completely shut down. And it seemed very much during that week-long time when the antibiotics weren't really doing much good that he was dead to the world and his body was about to die too. And here's the interesting part of the story. As Dr. Eben Alexander recounts it, that whole week-long time period when his neocortex was not functioning, he was experiencing a near-death experience. He was experiencing realms that he never knew existed as he perceived them. He was experiencing force being kind of born again into what he called the worm's eye view, kind of a mucky place to be and emerging out of that into flying on the back of butterfly wings, his words, not mine. One of the things about this book is that uh, there are times at which it sounds like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I really would recommend to you about some uh, experiences of what life after death may be. Uh, too often, however, this book sounds simply like a Hallmark card. It's just kind of a little too sweet. That said, he has these experiences of flying on the back of these butterfly wings, being guided by this spirit guide, this beautiful young girl, the most beautiful being he's ever seen, and then coming into what he calls the core, the source, also calls God, or simply borrowing from the Hindu traditions, Om. And he says he received these teachings, his words, not mine, three basic teachings in this near-death experience that seemed to last the entirety of the time that he was in the coma. One, that we are inherently and eternally loved. Two, that essentially we have nothing to fear. And three, that we are basically not wrong. We're basically not broken. Now, some folks have received Proof of Heaven and Dr. Eben Alexander's story with a tremendous amount of skepticism. If you've ever been on the website Gawker, kind of a social networking website, and also they provide their own content, uh, they put up a little quiz where you had to choose Dr. Eben Alexander's journey into the afterlife or 
someone who took an acid trip. <laughs> and you really can't tell the difference, which I'm not sure proves anything whatsoever. My attitude toward psychedelics is basically that of George Harrison, whose spiritual journey began with the ingesting of psychedelics, but who finally chose a deeper, more sustainable spiritual path because he said, ultimately, the self-defeating path is to make your enlightenment contingent upon a substance. Ultimately, it will end up defeating you. A more nuanced critique, and I think a more wise critique of Dr. Eben Alexander's is this, Oliver Sacks, a name some of you might recognize, a famous quote-unquote neuroscientist, about as famous as a neuroscientist I think can ever get, at least in this current state. Oliver Sacks says when he reads Dr. Eben Alexander's book, he says because Dr. Alexander had such an experience of timelessness, and we know when we're actually just physical dreaming, when we go to sleep at night, we lose all sense of time and the continuum and linear process. And he says it's entirely possible, and Dr. Alexander should have known this, or at least he's not saying it, which is that as the brain emerges from coma and the neocortex comes back online, in that moment of his body waking back up and him coming back to life, what he experienced as a week-long journey could have been simply 20 to 30 seconds of experience. I want to listen to Dr. Oliver Sacks when he says that because he doesn't say it as some of the folks who commented on Gawker. I mean, it's really mean-spirited stuff. The assumption that so many of those commenters go to on that little quiz is this guy is selling snake oil. There's no possible way he could have had this experience. There's no possible way this could be genuine or authentic. I'm not going to choose. <laughs> I don't feel forced to choose. Instead, I'm going to quote Iris Dement, the, uh, the folk singer, who says, sometimes we got to be content to let the mystery be. we got to be content to let the mystery be, because the point is, none of us sitting right here right now are dead. <laughs> we don't know. There is, however, a lot that I want to pay attention to in these near-death experiences as they have been told to me and as I have read about them, and they are nearly a universal human experience. And it comes back to one of those images that Dr. Alexander talked about and is related to one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings. It is about that image of the butterfly. It is about the capacity that we have as human beings for transformation of being the caterpillar who goes into the chrysalis, who emerges as a butterfly, a new way of being. One of the things I have experienced as someone who has been close to death often throughout my life, not my own physical death, but I have been close to death as a minister and also the death of those who I have loved and lost. At the margins of our awareness, at the margins of this physical life, I have seen over and over again new opportunities for awareness come to be. Jack Kornfield is one of my favorite spiritual teachers, tells a story about one of these experiences in his great book, A Path with Heart. He tells a story about a guy who's a, a Buddhist hospice worker. And he's telling a story about one of the patients in the hospice who's in this room. There's no way to contact the room unless you physically go into the room. And he's a very elderly man, and his two grown children have been coming to see him day after day after day as he is preparing to die. And one morning, on their way to visit their father, these kids get a call that this man's also elderly brother has been killed in a car crash. And they go back and forth between each other and ask, do we tell dad, do we not tell dad? And finally, they decide, no, we don't want to upset him. And they enter into the room deciding they're not going to mention anything. 
And their father emerges from kind of normally his very quiet, very almost sleep-like state and says, do you have something to tell me? No, Dad. I think you have something to tell me about my brother. I've been sitting here talking to him for the last half hour. It's amazing. After the 930 service, I had like three people come up and tell me stories like this. Again, I don't think the most important question with stories like this is putting them immediately into our very human tendency to say true or false. I'm merely content to say these stories happen. And they are stories that bring comfort and healing to people who experience them. Finally, I don't think there is a final answer, at least not yet. So the most compelling question is here, not why do such things happen? I think the more important question we can ask in the face of near-death experiences and stories like Dr. Alexander's or my father's or from that Buddhist hospital worker is this. What do we do with it? How does it change who we are right now in the midst of this life? Because that's where the transformation comes in. It is very clear that Dr. Alexander's life changed in profound ways and he opened up to an experience of love and connection and belonging that he did not have prior. How we deal with the limits of our awareness and things like near-death experience is directly related to who we are right now in the midst of this life, whatever we might believe about what comes next. Gerald May, another favorite spiritual teacher of mine, says this, the human mind is an endless source of inventiveness when it comes to avoiding the implications of spiritual experience. And by the way, spiritual experience could all happen in the brain, and that could be it, or spiritual experience could really be about transporting us to dimensions, multiverses, that truly do exist. One way or the other, it's still spiritual experience, and the implications of it can be profound for us. The first implication is this, I think. Dr. Eben Alexander, you would describe him prior to the time of his near-death experience, of his coma, as not spiritual but not religious. He would be religious but not spiritual, which is to say he went to an Episcopal church week after week after week after week for years, and didn't believe a single word of it and wasn't interested in any of it. Something changed in him. And here's the thing. He didn't have the right belief, quote-unquote. There's a lot of traditions want to tell us. You will get into heaven if you believe correctly. Many religious traditions, the history of religious traditions has been, unfortunately, too often this, that they seek to colonize lands or other people so they can prove their own power. And indeed, this kind of religious misbehavior, cruelty, is still going on in our life right now. Other traditions have simply switched the ball fields that they play on. They want to colonize the afterlife to say, if you believe in this certain way, then you will get the entrance ticket into heaven. I've read and studied and talked to so many people who have had near-death experiences. Whether it just happens in the brain or whether it is a profound growth and shift in our consciousness, this thing is true. Belief has almost absolutely nothing to do with it at all. We don't set ourselves up for it in right belief. 
But I think there's an even deeper implication that gets down to this transformation, this capacity to be the caterpillar who goes into the chrysalis and comes out a new, different, more fully grown creature. And when I think about near-death experiences and what it tries to teach me about what it means to be most fully alive, I think of this character. I think of Tony Soprano. Tony Soprano is, I'm going to assume most of you know by now, is a mobster. And what do mobsters do? They offer protection rackets. The way a protection racket works is this. They will go into a store owner, they will go into a local business person and say, if you pay me X amount of dollars a month or so much off the top per year, I will protect you. What are they protecting them from? The mobster. <laughs> I think of Tony Soprano when I try to listen to the ex experiences of what it is to have the consciousness open up. And I wonder about my own internal Tony Soprano, which is to say the harshness and the clingingness of my ego, which wants to say I'm something very, very solid, and I got to protect what's mine, and I got to hold on to this me that I have defined as me. And I wonder, am I creating the conditions of fear that I need protection from? And by seeking protection for my ego, am I creating the conditions for fear? One way or the other, an afterlife or if death is it, this thing that we call ourselves has such capacities to grow and change and transform. And near-death experiences are but one expression of the ways in which our consciousness can grow. And so from time to time, I try to ask myself, and I think it's important to ask all ourselves, what are we being so protective of if eventually life is change and growth and transformation? Not to minimize our identity, not to minimize the things that we love about ourselves, but to just let it be and to be a little bit more loose with who we are. This ultimately, whether there is anything after or there is not, is the meaning, and also not just the sad meaning, and there's plenty of that, but the liberating meaning of what it means that things are impermanence. We get to grow and change. And near-death experiences to a person from Anyone that I have ever heard says this, our capacities to be human are so much more grand and so much more healing that our normal, everyday, sometimes very limited consciousness might like to admit. On this week, this week of Valentine's Day, talk about a hallmark, I mean the hallmark holiday. <laughs> you know, I mean, really what it's about is our capacity to learn to love. I mean, there is no more important spiritual question for us. We can get lost in the esoteric stuff of consciousness, but what it returns back to is how well do we love? Do we love in ways that are clinging and fearful, or do we learn to love in ways that are more open-hearted and generous with ourselves and with other people? That is liberation to the extent that we can know liberation here and now to learn to love better. It also makes sense for me of these words that are 
incredibly important in the history of our Unitarian Universalist teachings. It gave the name to the Unitarian congregation that ordained me, the Unitarian Church of All Souls in the Upper East Side of New York City. Washington, D.C. is an All Souls. Kansas City has an All Souls. There are a whole bunch of All Soulses all throughout this movement, and it comes from this quote, William Ellery Channing in the 1830s. He said these words, I am a living member of the great family of all souls. Think about that. To really feel that you, we, are a living member of the great family of all souls. We're a member of that family, and there's nothing we can do to deserve it. It just simply is because we're alive. Words like mine, me, ours, yours, I'm not saying such things don't exist, but maybe ultimately they don't. And there is simply the experience of belonging. Simply the experience of belonging. That's what Dr. Eben Alexander got out of his experience. That's what I've heard from many people who have tested those limits of our daily awareness. That things just kind of open up a bit more. And we can ease up some of that tightness that we might feel at the corner or at the center of our lives. Ultimately, what makes a difference, where we can choose, is how we choose to integrate that insight back into life. It's why our great teacher, Henry David Thoreau, said this when he was asked once by someone who, one of those people really wanted the definitive answer. What happens after we die? So they put the question to Thoreau when, by the way, he was dying. So this is like immediate for him. Tell me about the world to come. And Thoreau's answer, love it. I take it one life at a time. <laughs> and notice his answer. I mean, that's like kind of hopeful agnostic right there. He doesn't say this is all there is. He doesn't say nothing more can be known. He says, this is what I know right now. Take it one life at a time. Of course, if we want to take it one life at a time, then we have to learn to take it one day at a time, perhaps even as we say week after week here, one breath at a time, because what we will find if we can take it one breath at a time is that life, which is no doubt incredibly difficult for so many of us, might be a little less difficult. And in that space of a little less difficulty, perhaps we ease up on ourselves and we ease up on other, other people, and the space that is filled then is love and connection, the exact kind of love and connection that we might hope might carry us through to that great beyond, whatever it is or is not. I'm going to end with a piece of poetry from Mary Oliver, also from our Unitarian Universalist tradition. Uh, by the way, I have never read a single work of theology that has changed my mind or opened my heart about the afterlife. I find them almost all to a point to be completely without merit. But poets have opened my mind and my heart and my consciousness about what may come next. Mary Oliver said these words that she said, and this is the title of the poem, When Death Comes. Just imagine this. I love this image. She says, when death comes, I want to step through that door full of curiosity. Step through that door full of curiosity. She says she'll be able to do that because she hopes that it will be said about her that all her life she was married to amazement.
to stop for just a moment right here and right now to feel the life within us and our beating hearts within us and to know that here we are in life between these two eternities of place from which we do not know coming and a place to which we cannot yet know going. But here we are and to allow that amazement to sink in and to make us curious about our experience. And I'm not talking in kind of intellectual curiosity. I'm talking about the kind of curiosity that says, wow, that says, here we are in our lives. At the end of this message series, at the end of this congregational day, at the end of life, to be able to say that we're stepping through whatever door is here with curiosity that we can experience amazing things. The amazing awareness of grace, the amazing awareness of love, the amazing awareness that we are here. And to begin to open ourselves from the change and to the change that comes from that one simple statement. We are here. May you be here, may you be aware. Amen and may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O presence of deep and infinite awareness, may we allow ourselves to sense the felt and the known and the intuitively or barely felt or just slightly known to allow ourselves throughout all of our lives to explore the fullness of the parameters of our existence, to go, yes, out to the depths and into the distance, and then to come back from those explorations into the here and into the now, and to say, what have we learned, good travelers? How can our journey be expanded as our hearts may be expanded, as our consciousness may be expanded, as our love may be expanded? May we allow ourselves to know today that we live and that we die and that perhaps we do not die. Amen.